Um, those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian. Um, I'm pastoral staff, and I'm normally here at uh, this location in St. Paul. And um, we've been in a, in a series now called The Waters We Swim In, and, which is uh, quite appropriate for the song that was sung, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, in a bit. Did you hear that? Not a minute, not a bit. It's a bit. Um, uh, this past week, I, uh, myself and uh, um, Paul Stiver um, and a couple of the pastors, we flew down to uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. And I'd never been to Cincinnati. I'd driven through it a million times, but I've never, never stayed there. Um, and uh, it was for a conference for Acts 29, um, which is where I got the shirt. Um, it wasn't free, though. I had to pay for it. Um, but I, uh, Acts 29 is just a, it's a church planning network. So that's all it is, is just churches that plant churches that plant churches that we want to keep multiplying and, and starting new churches and new cities and new neighborhoods. And, and that's our plan. That's our goal. And we will continue to do that. And so just going down there was great. Um, but we had a morning off. And so the, the group, a larger group of us, um, there was the um, Underground Railroad um, Museum. And that museum, it was... Um, Awful, <laughs> right? We get done, right? And the people in the bookstores were like, hey, you know, how, how, what'd you think of our great museum? It's like, man, uh, as a white male, it kind of ticks me off, actually. Um, this is a um, slave pen, an actual house uh, where. Human beings were treated like animals by animals. Um, that uh, and then to see um, white men use the Bible to justify that, um, there's a there's a dark place in hell for those men. What I'm trying to do tonight, what we're going to talk about tonight is identity. And those individuals that had to go through that hell on earth, that's who they are. It's their identity. It's their grandkids and their kids aren't even born. That's their story. And so how do we balance our identity, what has made us who we are, the trials, the difficulties that we've had to go through, and how do we balance that with what culture is telling us? And that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to look at the waters in which we swim, and I want to look at identity. And what is the false identity that we hear all the time? And matter of fact, that cool song that was just played that we love, right? The lyric says, don't punish me for what I feel. That's the narrative. Just, just do what you want. Just, just feel the way you want to feel, right? Just be who you want to be. and Don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. Just be true to yourself. Don't punish me for what I feel. And so the, the reasons why it's called this, the waters in which we, sim, we swim, is because when we look at the culture and these, these dogmas, or which is a very, right, as Cora, Pastor Cor last week said, it's a very churchy word, but looking at these dogmas, what is culture telling me how I should be or how I should feel, that I should just do whatever I want, that's my identity, just be true to myself. That when we're in those waters, when we're inundated with that, we don't even realize what water we're swimming in anymore. 
right? You've ever done that? You ever been to like a pool and when you first get in, it's freezing cold, right? You know what I'm talking about? And then, and then you're in there for a few minutes and it actually feels pretty good. Like you don't even want to get up out of the water because it, it feels better to be under the water. And then somebody else jumps in and they're like, oh, it's freezing. And they jump out and you're like, no, it's not so bad. You just gotta, just gotta get used to it, right? And that's what happens in our culture that we get used to what society is telling us in this cultural thing and we don't even realize we're in it. And so I want to look at identity through the gospel lens. And so that's the narrative, that's the cultural dogma that's being told to us. You just be true to yourself and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Um, if you got a, a handout tonight, it's blank, okay? <laughs> I didn't get lazy, and it may seem lazy, but I didn't. There actually is an outline, um, but I wanted to leave some space for notes, that kind of thing. I don't want you to get bogged down with the points. Where is he going next? I just want you to, to see where we're going and see what the gospel has to say about our identity. And I want to start with Genesis chapter 1. I have a couple of verses printed out on that handout, but all the other passages will be on screen, and I'll, and I'll read them all out loud. Uh, but we're going to start in the beginning, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, looking at the creation of identity. How are we made. It says this, then God said, let us make man in our image. All right, if you go back and you read the first, the whole of the first chapter, everything is that he creates these animals, he creates the beasts, he creates the flocks, he creates the, the birds and the fish and all these things, and it's just, he makes them, and that's the end of the story. But then he gets to humanity, and there's something different. And God says, let us make man in our image. In our likeness, there's something about being human that is not animalistic. And I, we, we've talked about this a million times. I think I've read the whole, uh, you know, the C.S. Lewis uh, account of, of creation account of, of uh, Narnia several times in here, of looking at it. And when we act like animals, when we become more animalistic, right, we're not acting human. We're not acting like Jesus, the truly human one in whom we've been imaged after says this, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And if we look at the next verse, which I didn't get to, right, he says, this is good. This is very good. And that's how creation of identity was made, that we were made in the image of God. And each one of us has our own personality and quirks and, and skin color and whatever it may be. That's our identity. That's who we are. But then something happens. Something breaks and we see the corruption of that identity. And we see that just in a couple chapters later, over in chapter three, it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, the serpent here says, speaks to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil, right? He's saying, if you do this thing, God is just jealous. He made you lesser than him. You are his creature. You're his creation. And he made this fruit that if you eat it, you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. And I just want to read one author, Gerhard von Rad. Von Rad. Uh, he says this. For the ancients, that would be the, the Israelites that would have written this, the good was not just an idea. Okay, so good and evil he's talking about. The good was not just an idea. The good was what had good effect. As a result, in this context, good and evil should be understood more as what is beneficial and salutary. We don't really use that word. Okay, so we're going to stick with beneficial for the remainder of the night. Okay, what is beneficial for me? Not just I know what is good. This benefits me on the one hand and detrimental and damaging on the other. So the serpent holds out less the prospect of an extension of the capacity for knowledge. Okay, thanks, big word guy. All right, what's he saying? He said the serpent doesn't just say, hey, I'm gonna make you smarter. Rather, he says, he gives them then the independence that enables man to decide for himself what will either help him or hinder him. So God, the creator of the universe says, this is what's good This is what will benefit you to not eat this tree. This is what will cause harm to you, is if you eat of this tree, I'm choosing as your creator, this is what's good, this is what's evil. And mankind then, in that moment, sets up for himself the ability to say, no, no, God, you don't tell me what's good for me. I decide what is good and beneficial for me. And I will also decide what is harmful for me. And you can't tell me to stay away from things that I don't think I should stay away from. I'm gonna be true to myself. I'm going to do it my way, to quote Frank Sinatra. I don't think he wrote that song. And then wrapping up here in that Genesis chapter 3. So he says, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave it to her husband, who was there with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves Loincloths. And this is something, again, that I've repeated multiple times, but in that moment, harmony is destroyed. That previous to that moment of eating that fruit, there was harmony between God and man. They walked in the cool of the day. There's harmony between mankind and mankind and, and husband and wife. No wars, no, no tension, no anything. They were even physically naked and unashamed. And there was harmony between mankind and, and nature. No earthquakes, no hurricanes, no cancer. It was perfect. But in that moment, all that breaks. Now there's disharmony between man and God and mankind and mankind and mankind and nature. So that's our story. That's where we are. That's our identity now is broken human beings. And it's been that way since that moment for thousands of years. So I want to look at the culture that we swim in. The culture that we swim in, but not just how it's been for the last thousands of years, which I just read, but what is it here now as an American? Okay, I know not everyone here, this might not be your, your, your native country and English might not be your native tongue, but I want to look at as a culture, as Western culture in the United States, what are the, the waters that we swim in? Um, Tim Keller, uh, pastor in New York, says that he calls it the sovereign self. And I want to read a, a quote from, from uh, Pastor Keller. He says this, Many argue that the most fundamental of the late modern narratives is that, is that of identity. That we must discover our deepest desires and longings and then do all that we can to realize them, regardless of constraint or opposition. 
Sociologist Robert Bella has called this narrative expressive individualism. I will call it sovereign self. All right, and he's gonna use that phrase of sovereign self of it's about me. We should start by recognizing the great good ushered in by the modern emphasis on the individual. And he's gonna explain that. Christianity has always seen the importance of the heart and its loves. Augustine's confessions represented an innovation. Augustine was a, was a, a bishop from the third century, so really old dead guy. Uh, confessions represented an uh, invitation in the history of human thought, a thoroughgoing examination of inner motives, motivations and desires. Okay, what, what's really happening in the heart and how does my Christian lens shape how I should react? Unlike the thinkers of classical antiquity, Christians regarded emotions as something not to be ignored or simply suppressed, but instead to be examined and redirected toward God. All right, in, the, in that culture, especially back in the early church and, and, and when we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a, a view that was called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, really what it said was that flesh was bad. So anything that had to do with my body was bad and anything spiritual was good. So we need to put everything within the spiritual realm and all these different things. And so if I had any kind of emotion, it was to be suppressed. It was supposed to be done with because it's not, it's not good to have those kinds of feelings. And, and the Bible, that's not how it feels. We're supposed to have joy and happiness and sadness. And we see all these things and we're supposed to examine our hearts when we have those feelings. It's supposed to be examined but then redirected toward God. Much of the modern understanding, excuse me, of the feelings And the self has grown from these Christian roots. The new, late modern narrative, that's now, however, goes beyond merely understanding and directing our own passions to enthroning them. It's all about me. Now identity is not realized as in traditional societies, okay? By by sublimating an individual desires for the good of our family and people. Okay, even still today, you go to an Eastern country, it's not about them, it's about how they can serve their family, serve their country, whatever it may be. It's about their community, not the individual. Not so in the United States, it's not the way it is. It's about me and what I can do, right? Be an army of one, right? Even in an army, you are an army of one, right? It's everything is about you and me and what I can do. And we, we enthrone them. Instead, we become ourselves uh, we become ourselves only by asserting our individual desires against society. Society says this, it's oppressing me. Man, you just do this thing. Just be yourself. By expressing our feelings and fulfilling our dreams regardless of what anyone says. One last quote here from him says this, you cannot get significance through self-recognition. Okay, listen to him here. He's gonna use some, some heady language, but I want you to follow him here. You cannot get significance through self-recognition. It must come in great measure from others. In the end, you can't name yourself or bless yourself, okay? That's true. You can't ultimately say to yourself, I don't care that everyone that I know thinks I'm a monster. I love myself, and that's all that matters. That would not convince us of our worth unless we were mentally unsound, right? Which is true, that that happens, We need someone from outside to say we are of great worth. And the greater the worth of the person telling us so, the more powerful that recognition is to our identity formation. 
Right, growing up, I played football my whole life, and my dad was a really good football player, better than I was, and, and, but he would, he would coach me, and he'd teach me these different things, right? And so when, when my teammate, right, when I would miss a block or I'd drop a pass or whatever it was, and I had a, you know, my teammate, who's my best friend, you know, would tap me on the helmet, like, hey, man, you'll get it next time. Okay, thanks, dude. But then when my dad would tell me that, right, when he would encourage me, man, that meant more. Why? Because my dad had more worth in my mind than that individual. And it's the same here, that I've, I value the worth of somebody giving me that information. So if we try to authenticate and validate ourselves, we place ourselves in an infinite loop of delusion that will lead to either narcissism, only looking at myself, or self-loathing, because I'm not good enough. How can I do these things that... If it's all about me, no, I can't do it. Okay, however, and maybe you're thinking this, I, I really just tried to answer some questions, if that makes sense, when, I was, you know, when we're going through this topic. Is this really what our culture's saying? Uh, other than the song that we just sang. I mean, is it really what culture's saying? Just be true to yourself, right? Well, um, yes, and I want to have a couple examples. Uh, Bill Shakespeare, right? This above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night and the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. All right, above all, to thine own self be true. Well, you say, well, that's, that's Bill Shakespeare. He's been dead like a long time, okay? That's not our culture, okay? Well, how about one that's a little more modern, right? And let it go. Frozen, okay? We're familiar with this flick? I've seen it once, but I've heard the songs probably way too many times, right? So I apologize. You're probably going to hear this song over and over and over in your head if you, if you know it, right? But let it go. Okay, I want to read the lyrics to this popular Disney song that our young ones have been inundated with, okay? Let me read the lyrics to the song. It's funny how some distance make, makes everything seem so small. And the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all, okay? Culture is saying this thing to me. Right To her, in her context, she was shooting icicles out of her hands, right? And culture was like, you can't do that. That's not acceptable. So she runs away, right? And the fears, right? She would wear gloves. She wouldn't build snowmen with her sister, all these different things, right? The fears that once controlled me, now they can't get to me. I'm going to run away from them. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and to break through. No right no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. All right, you're all singing it, right? We know this song, that's what culture, this is the water we're swimming in. I'm free, no right, no wrong, I'm free, let it go. I'm one with the wind and sky, that's enough. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna keep going. Right, but that's the, that's the cultural narrative that we hear over and over and over. Man, just be true to yourself. Just do your thing, man, you be you. So how are we, and by we here in this slide, at least, I mean, how are we as believers, as Christians, supposed to view culture? Are we just supposed to look at that and write, okay, well, I guess I'm never watching a Disney movie ever again. No, that's not what I'm saying. How are we supposed to respond to culture? Well, Jesus says this in John chapter 17. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Okay, I have given your people, the believers, your Christians, I have given them your word, Father, and the world hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer, listen to what Jesus says here, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. 
They, my people, my believers, they are not of the world, even as I am of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. You sent me into the world, and I have sent them into the world. So we are in the world, but not of the world. That's not necessarily what we have seen. And historically, Christians don't always get this right. There have been movements, and and I'm not going to pick on the Amish, right? I don't really know a whole lot about the Amish. But they would say, I'm going to remove myself, completely remove myself from culture. So So when Jesus says, don't be of the world, he's saying, yeah, okay, I won't be anything like the world. I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to have electricity, right? The one thing I've never understood about the Amish is why, how come they're allowed to have like buggies and horses? Or they didn't always have buggies and horses. Why? Like when, like the 1800s, that's okay to start being culturally irrelevant. I don't, I've never understood that about them. I love them dearly. I really do, but I don't get it. Um, don't be of the world of isolation. I'm going to remove myself. Okay. And even for me growing up, I went to a, a university where, where this was their mindset. We're going to build walls and fences so much so that the barbed wire on the top of the fences didn't lean out to keep society from getting in. They leaned in to keep me from getting out, okay? That was, that's isolation. We're going to build houses and communities, and we're just going to protect ourselves, and we don't ever have to worry about the world inundating anything. We're just going to, that's not what we're called to do. And I think other believers and other Christians, other circles, maybe go a little bit too far, right? And they go on the offensive, and they attack the world. I just said, well, the Bible says this, and you guys, man, the world, you need to do this. I've, that's a, it's a pet peeve of mine. I've never understood why we as Christians try to hold a non-believer to a Christian ethic. They don't believe it. And they go on and they attack and they fight. The other side of this is we are in the world. We, we simulate, where we, we say, okay, there's nothing really in the world, right? The world would say, we're going to, okay, going back to the garden of saying, God, we're going to choose what's, what's harmful and we're going to choose what's beneficial for me. And then the church comes along and says, you know what? I think they're right. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to hurt anybody with what the Bible teaches and what the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. So we're going to say, you know what? What the world says is beneficial. We too will say what's beneficial. What the world calls harmful, that's what we'll call harmful. And they don't stay true to the word. And so we're going to get there eventually with how, what are we supposed to do when we're in the world but not of the world. But I want to look at this idea of the reinstatement of human identity. Okay, so if this is the culture we swim in, what is different? Jesus says this in John chapter 3. And there was a Pharisee. Pharisee is just a a religious leader of, of the Jewish community at that time. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. All right, so so this Pharisee, this teacher of the law, this this rabbi understands something that from what he's read, there's something about this Jesus guy that he's doing powerful things that that something's different about him. He must be from God. And Jesus replies to them, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. All right, now keep in mind, right? We've we've fallen. Our humanity is broken. And Jesus here is saying, you need to be reborn. You need to have new life. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. 
And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are an Israelite teacher, Jesus said, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man, speaking about himself. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. It's that simple. Just believe in me. Then he says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's what's beneficial for you. I'm reinstating what humanity should be and it's one with me. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God of God's one and only son. That is what the creator of the universe says now to us in our culture. This is what's beneficial and this is what's harmful. And this is pretty black and white. You believe in Jesus, you ask him for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what's beneficial. If I don't, only harm. Jesus reinstates our human identity. So then, how do we here now again? How do we interact? What do we do? We're not in, or sorry, we are in but not of. It's both and. We can't, we can't just remove. We can't just blame and attack. We can't just say, ah, it's no big deal. We're just be of the world. No, it's in but not of. Our desires are different. Our calling is different. Our filter is a different filter. I'm gonna read 1 Corinthians chapter one, looking at verse 18 through 31. says this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Are right, he's simply saying, if you're here right now and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, right, this message, hopefully it's encouraging. It's good news, the good news of the gospel and the freedom of not having to just listen to culture. I just got to be me. I can filter this through scripture. I can filter this through Christ. And if you're not a believer, maybe I'm just putting words in your head or your mind, but man, this guy's an idiot. (laughs) For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God The world through us, its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded signs and the Greeks looked for wisdom. But we 
preach Christ crucified. And every time you enter into this church, that's exactly what I'm going to be doing. I will be preaching Christ crucified. And I can sit here and try to sound elegant and eloquent and all those different things. It's foolishness. I must preach Christ crucified because he is our only hope. He's our filter, not culture. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, that he is the power and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. I love this, right? This, this is humbling. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's got nothing to do with me. It is completely countercultural. It's not about me and what I want and what I feel and just be myself. Don't let anyone get in your way. I can't even boast in this. It's got nothing to do with me and it has everything to do with Jesus Christ, our Savior. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, okay? So remember, that thing that we say, this is our culture, not a culture, broken human beings, that I look at something, I say, that's beneficial, that's harmful. Jesus Christ shows up and he says, right here, Jesus Christ, he is our righteousness. He is what is beneficial for us. He is our holiness. He is what is, tells us what we should be separate from in this world and say, no, that's not okay. I can't even redeem that thing. And then redemption. Can I, this is not in my notes. I wasn't planning on saying this, but I'm going to say it. Is that okay? Um, with anything in society, okay? I want you to think about three R's, okay? And this was something I heard from a pastor a long time ago. You can view anything, okay, uh, through three lenses. That I can either receive it, uh, I can redeem it, or I can reject it, okay? So, for example, uh, technology, okay? I'm using a microphone, um, that's good, right? We're recording it. We're going to, you know, whatever, right? I, I can do these things, right? So that's something that the world has made, okay? You understand what I'm saying? That somebody beyond these walls, I think, did anybody invent the microphone in here? Okay. I thought, Will, I thought maybe you, you might have, but no, okay. Um, right? We take this thing that was created outside and we, we receive it. Yeah, that's a good thing. I, I want that. Yeah, that, that will help me. That will benefit me. That's a good thing. And then there are also things that, that culture or things that, that do that they can take and they can say, uh, we can redeem this thing. Okay, for example, sex. Right? Sex was created by God. But then they take pornography, which is a, a blasphemous, fake thing, and we can take that and say, no, what does a biblical ethic of sex in marriage look like? And we can take something that culture says, this is good, like this. We say, no, 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 it's better. It's better when it's filtered through scripture, right? And so we can redeem that. But then there are certain things that we can just flat out reject. Just say, no, that, there's nothing good about pornography. Done. We're not gonna even, we're not gonna talk, right? Nope, not okay. We reject it, okay? So that's 
three, three R's, right? We'd receive it, redeem it, flat out reject it. Okay. This is why you stick to your notes because I have no idea where I am now. All right. Oh, yeah, yeah, here we go. The restoration of human identity, okay? So, so he, he gives us the opportunity, right? He says, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna reinstate in that uh, uh, John chapter three passage, but now this is the restoration. This is what your life should be like swimming in a culture that says you just be you. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God. And I didn't put the verse in here, but you listen to what Paul's saying here. Paul is not saying that my identity in the sense of what has made me who I am. Right? I am still a white man who was born in New Britain, Connecticut to Rodney and Darlene Silver. Right? That's, that's, that's my story. That's, that's who I am. That doesn't change. But now that that's who I am, how do I filter that? How do I live by faith in the Son of God? That's still, why, that's still my story. And you have your own stories. But how do we take that story and point it toward Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul does that, right? He says, I was born a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. That's, that's, that's who I am. That's my story. But now, in Christ, these are his words. I live by faith. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Again, if I could do this on my own, if it was all about me and just figure it out, well, Christ died for nothing. And again, I love what Keller says here. He says, the question of identity is not who am I, but whose am I? All our culture wants to tell you, just be yourself. Who are you, right? Just figure this out. But whose am I? And I'm reminded of just now in this moment of, of, of Moses, or we just spent a long time in Exodus, right? But you remember when Moses, he's at the burning bush, and Moses asked the question, who am I that you would send me to get your people out of bondage? And what is God's response? I am, right? He doesn't say, Moses, let me tell you who you, man, you are really special, man. Like, you are so good. I created you just to, I am. Not who I am, whose I am. And we belong to that great I am. A few more quotes from Keller to close, and then we will wrap this up with communion. He says this, Imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain in AD 800. He has two very strong inner impulses and feelings. One is aggression, and he loves to smash and kill people when they show him disrespect. Living in a shame and honor culture with its warrior ethic, he will identify with that feeling. He will say to himself, that's me. That's who I am. I smash heads. That's who I am. I will express it. The other feeling he senses is same-sex attraction. To that, he will say, that's not me. And I will control and I will suppress that impulse. Because culture says otherwise. Now, imagine a young man walking around Manhattan today. He has the same two inward impulses and both equally strong, both difficult to control. What will he say? He will look at the aggression and think, that is not who I want to be. 
and will seek deliverance and therapy and anger management programs because that's not culturally acceptable. And he will look at his sexual desire, however, and conclude, that is who I am. What does this thought experiment show us? Primarily, it reveals that we do not get our identity simply from within. That the choices we make come from something else. It reveals that we do not get our identity simply from something within. Rather, we receive some interpretive moral grid and we lay it down over our various feelings and impulses and we sift them through it. And this grid helps us decide which feelings are me and should be expressed and which are not and should not be. So this grid of interpretive beliefs is not an eight, unadulterated expression of our feelings. It is what shapes our identity. That we have voices and culture and desires coming from all different directions. And what Keller is saying, what I've been trying to say all night, is that those outside filters that we should be looking at, everything, is the gospel, is Jesus Christ. Who am I? I'm dead to sin. I'm free to live. I'm free to be free because he is so good. So I want to worship him. And I want to take what he says is harmful and believe and understand that to be harmful. I want to take what he says is beneficial and accept that and believe that to be beneficial for us. So in closing, gospel application. What do I What do you need to filter through what God says to be true about my identity and worth? Because let me tell you something. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your story is. I don't care what your background is. You have value and dignity and worth in the eyes of the king. So much so that he sent his son to this planet with flesh to die for you. You matter. Your story matters. And he loves you. And he wants you to be dead to sin. Secondly, how do we need to filter what we think about how we view others? How about how how I, how about how you view others? Do we look down on somebody because they're of a different political party? Because they're not of a political party. Do we look down on somebody because of of skin tone or because of... uh, of, uh, economic diversity or whatever it may be, right? Whatever. How do I filter that? Because if I filter that through the lens of the gospel, you all have dignity, value, and worth in the eyes of the king, and you are deeply loved. How do I know that? I know that because Jesus told us to remember. He told us to remember every single time that we gather together that we are to take bread that represents his body that was torn and broken for you to cover your sins and to set you free from the bondage of slavery of sin. And we drink juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you. That's what we do every week, and we get to do that tonight. So will you bow your heads with me as we close, and as we share in a meal of communion of remembering Jesus Christ together. Heavenly Father God, you are good, you are lovely, You are majestic. 
You did not need to save us. But in your grace, you chose to save us. You chose to show us what is good and to teach us what is right. And so God, will you empower us to live by that, to live by your word, to treat others as if they are created in the image of God? That no matter who it is, they reflect the image of their creator. And God, for those in this room that don't believe that, that say, this is, this is foolish, God, would you just show them? Because I can't, only you can. God, I pray that you'd be magnified, honored as we celebrate communion tonight as a body of believers, as we remember what Christ did for us thousands of years ago to set us free from slavery. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.